Welcome to the session. This is the Blueprint Soccer Podcast, and I'm your host, Clint. If you find this podcast valuable, please share it with your teammates, friends, and family. Enjoy. On this episode of the podcast, we are joined by a very special guest, a coach who has amassed 723 wins in 43 years, the most wins in college soccer, two-time Division III national champion, 2020 United Soccer Coaches Hall of Fame inductee, and the current head coach of Ohio Wesleyan University, Dr. Jay Martin. As I was preparing for the podcast, I came across an article on the NCAA website that quoted you saying, you don't deserve to be called coach. What would you prefer? My name's Jay. My, my players call me Jay. My, my people in my classes call me Jay. And um, just very quickly, my two coaching role models were my father and my high school basketball coach, and you'll probably hear more about that later. Mm-hmm. And in my mind, Clint, I haven't reached their status yet. So I don't want anybody to call me coach because I'm not there yet. I'm working in that direction, but I'm not there yet. Well, Jay, it's a real honor to have you on the podcast. Thank you so much for taking the time to share some of your experiences with the listeners, and I'm really looking forward to, to the conversation with you. So. Now, there's a lot of things uh, I want to talk to you about, but since it's been on my mind since I uh, did the podcast with your son, Ryan, I am super intrigued as to how you've been at the same school coaching for 43 years. I think it's incredible. For the listeners, can you share just a little bit about your background? Obviously, 40 years could take an eternity to get through all the details, but 43 years at Ohio Wesleyan is incredible. Congratulations. Thank you. It won't be 43 more, I can tell you that, but who knows? <laughs> who knows with medication uh, and doctors these days? <laughs> exactly. I think, Clint, what people don't know about me is that I'm a professor as well, and uh, soccer coaching is part of my job description. I teach in the classroom every day for the for the entire year. And then, so so I'm not just a coach and if I was just a coach maybe I would have moved around a little bit and believe me I've had a number of opportunities to move around uh, division ones have come calling the Columbus crew asked me once to, to coach them um, but I was uh, but I'm a professor I was the athletic director for 20 years the chair of the physical education department for 19 years was Wesleyan and the job description is very meaningful to me and the young men and women in the classroom the young men and women that I've been very fortunate enough to to teach and coach have also been very meaningful to me so I I really haven't um, thought about leaving I did go out and look at other jobs uh, not not recently of course Mm -hmm. but um, I never seriously considered leaving Ohio Wesleyan because it's it's to me it's more than just a job it's 
my profession. It's uh, my professional life is Ohio Wesleyan. So I'm perfectly satisfied where I am right now. Well, I didn't know the connection between the, the education piece of it as well and establishing yourself within that community. Is that, is, do you think that's what's really kept you there uh, more than, than the soccer? What if the soccer results were up and down from year to year? For the listeners, you haven't had more losses in a season than wins. Um, and I'm hoping we can get into how you've developed that, that uh culture within the soccer program it seems like you've focused more on the educational piece which i'm also very interested to talk to you about focusing on being an educator uh you know before being uh, a quote-unquote coach i know you don't like being called that or, or focusing on the athletics but it seems like that community aspect has been a huge piece of your success can you talk about community and and what that's done because i'm familiar with that at St. Benedict's, where I think that's why that program has been so successful as well. The community aspect um, of it is is probably the biggest piece. What is it like at Ohio Wesleyan? Can you share that perspective and, and how involved uh, the community is in, in just the whole university? Let me, yes, let me first respond to a comment you made early, and that is, what if the results weren't so consistently good? Um, and maybe I've thought about that and, and maybe Clint, that would have precipitated me considering leaving. Uh, but you know, after a few years when we didn't make the NCAA tournament my first year, and then we made it 18 straight years. Mm -hmm. And I'm thinking every time I went out to look at another place, I'm thinking, why should I leave when we have this great community, as you say, and I, it's interesting you use community because I, I use community instead of family. I think we in sports uh, beat the hell out of this family thing. And I don't think a team is a family. I, I don't. I think a team is a community. Mm -hmm. So it's interesting to use that word as well. But every time I went out to look at, at another place, it reaffirmed in my mind what a good place Ohio Wesleyan was. So I would come back energized, motivated, and, and, and get going. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we've been... Um, 43 years, and we've been to the NCAA tournament 40 of those 43 years. And so my question is, why leave? I mean, we're doing the right thing. And as I went on, it became clear to me that what we do up at our soccer field works. Um, and not only works for soccer, but it works for the relationships between and among the players and the, and the relationships between the players and myself. If I could, just for a moment. Sure. 2011, we were playing uh, in the national semifinal in San Antonio, Texas, and we were playing somebody close to you, Montclair State, mm -hmm. on a Friday night, and there were 70-plus Ohio Wesleyan alums in the stands who didn't know anybody on the field but they knew Ohio Wesleyan was playing a national semifinal. And so, um, you know, they, on their own dime, it was the first week in December, so we're talking holidays. When we beat Montclair State, um, over 50 guys flew in on Saturday to watch us play the final game against Calvin of Michigan. When the whistle blew, we won 2-1. to one. The stands where, where the fans were, were were across the field from the benches, 
And when the whistle blew, all of my players took off and jumped into the stands and they celebrated with the alums. And my wife came up next to me and she said, you see, Jay, that's what you've been doing at this. At this point, it was 35 years or whatever it was. We said, that, that's what you've been doing for 35 years and it's got nothing to do with soccer. And so, you know, to me, there have been a couple of things like that that, have, that tell me that what we do is right. And we complement, the soccer program complements the academic mission of the university with, with these guys. And, and Clint, just this past January, I was inducted into the United Soccer Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. And again, over 80 of my former players, it was in Baltimore, over 80 of my former players came to Baltimore to celebrate that with me, Come, came to the dinner. Obviously, we went out for a drink afterwards, and it was just it was just unbelievable. I mean, you know, like we had people from San Francisco, L.A., Denver, Chicago, Houston, all flew in just to spend literally two or three hours with, and celebrate with me. So... Those are a couple of examples of of the community we've established, the culture we've established, and how the guys take it with them when they leave when they leave Ohio West. And we had our 50th anniversary, 2005, and 300 soccer players, former soccer players, showed up for that. And to me, that's you know that, that's almost all of them. I mean, it wasn't, but it was representative of they wanted to come back they wanted to spend time with each other they wanted to be back on the field at Roy Reich that's our game field mm-hmm. and uh, so anyway as I went on and on and on I kept thinking why leave things are going pretty well I mean we're winning the guys are graduating you know they're becoming doctors lawyers sure. soccer coaches whatever so you know then I woke up one morning and it was the beginning of my 43rd year so, I mean, who knows? It went, it went very fast. Incredible. Congratulations on United Soccer Coaches. I was going to bring that up. That is obviously very well-deserved. couple of points that we'll get into hopefully later in the episode is definitely want to talk about culture since that's something that is thrown around so often um, with today's coaches. And then to the uh, amount of coaches that have come uh, from being players of yours that have now been also extremely successful uh, in particular in the collegiate game, I think is something that, that is that's something that needs to be looked into as to, to why I want to talk to you about that. Um, so again, for the listeners, 43 years, 723 wins, 153 losses, 72 ties or 74 ties. So almost a, it's more than an 800 win percentage. To get the other perspective from you, You've done all that winning. You've had all that success. Another challenge doesn't intrigue you. I know you talk about the community that's been established. I'm sure you've gotten maybe criticisms thrown your way as to why not leave? Can you do it somewhere else? Because it's something that I think about often developing something like you have for 43 years and really establishing something or you know, you have five, six, seven, eight years uh, being really successful in one environment and then challenging yourself in another environment to see if you can do and replicate what you did at the previous um, place. Can you talk a little bit about that and, and 
you know, I, I know we, it's kind of hard when you've established something for 43 years to look at the other side of the, you know, <laughs> fence, so to say. Yes, good question. Um, and I think one of the problems we have at Ohio Wesley, and I'm sure it's the same at St. Benedict's, is the expectation of the campus community about the soccer team is always very, very high. Sure. Uh, a, lo a lot of the people associated with Ohio Wesley just assume, as they do with your place, that we're going to be successful, we're going to win the conference, we're going to go to the NCAA tournament, and that's that. But you know, and I know, and, and every coach listening to this knows, that that's not the case. Every year it's a new team with new guys. You lose seniors, you bring in freshmen. So, Clint, every, I look at every season as a challenge, and I don't have to, in my mind, go to a Division One school to be challenged. My challenge is molding this group of young men who are not a team when they show up in preseason, molding them to a cohesive, effective winning team. And, and as you know, that's really challenging. Yes. And to do this and be... I guess as successful as we've been for this period of time, um, that too is a challenge, isn't it? I mean, I you know, I mean, do I put pressure on myself? Absolutely. Do I have to? Probably not. Sure, I mean, yeah. I think my legacy is okay, and uh, so I look at, at that as a challenge. In fact, when the the, the worst day of my of the, the of the academic year for me is the day that we have to put the soccer equipment away. I hate it. Mm -hmm. I absolutely hate it. So from that period on, I'm getting ready for next year, and it's a challenge, right? Every team has a different personality. It, it's it's so much fun to, to for me anyway to walk to to, to to try to bring a group of guys together. It, it's a blast, but it's also challenging. Sure, yeah, no, it's something that we talk about uh, as a staff being an assistant coach at St. Benedict's. Every year is a new challenge, and everybody from the outside perceives it to be, oh, they'll just do it again. It's easy. But to work and have to uh, pull a team or a group of, of players together to become a team, and, and you know that short amount of time, usually it's a month before you get a whole bunch of games thrown at you, 20-something games in, in two, three months, um, is not easy. And everybody just anticipates, oh, it's another layup, putting those groups together. It, it's easy working with the best players, but it's more of a challenge to work with talented players and all those egos to piece them together. So, yeah, the you're right. It is a fresh uh, slate every year, and it is a new challenge every year because of new dynamics within the team uh, and having to, to piece the, the group together to to get them all on the same page to, to be successful. So um, if there's anything you want to touch on that, feel free. I, I want to really get into the longevity um, and loyalty that you've shown towards Ohio Wesleyan. How have you been doing it for so long, year after year? The, maybe if you could share share your secret sauce as to 43 years to be doing it year in and year out with so much energy. And like I said to, uh, to the listeners before, you've had more wins than losses every single year. There hasn't been a year with more losses than wins. It, it's incredible. And to sustain that uh, energy and, and, and to get the response out of guys year in and year out um, it is something that uh, I'm really intrigued in and, and really interested to get your perspective on how you've done it. Well, um, I think, you know, people, I'm 71, 
people keep asking me when I'm going to retire. And I say to them, why should I retire? Because, Clint, I look forward to going to Ohio Wesleyan. I live nine miles south of Ohio Wesleyan. I look forward to going to campus every single day. Whether I'm teaching or coaching, I look forward to dealing with the students, helping the students, supporting the students, getting getting them on that stage, graduation, weekend. And so I think that's how I've stayed there. I mean, a couple of, a couple of times when I was AD, and this is the reason I stepped down from being AD, a couple of times things were tough, mm-hmm. and I wasn't forward to going to the going to school, going up to Wesleyan, but um, not very often. I look forward every every single day. And uh, for example, when, when we had to go uh, um, to teach online about after spring break this past year around mid-March, it was, it was so hard for me to coach, I'm sorry, to teach the two classes via this thing, yeah. via Zoom. Yeah. You know? I mean, and um, because... I enjoy the classroom. I enjoy challenging the students. And so I think that's, at least that's my secret. I love what I do. And when I stop loving what I'm doing, then I'll retire. But it's not going to be anytime real soon. Yeah. For the listeners, if you come back and listen to this two, three, four years down the road, uh, obviously going through the the coronavirus pandemic right now, and there's been the shift to, to online. So if you do listen to it, that... Uh, down the down the road here that's that's what uh is being talked about so yeah the, the you talk about talk about the interaction with the the student body on campus is that something that you always enjoyed when did that start or when did was that established or was that just years and years in the making where you know you were like yeah look this is something that i i've really enjoyed or is that something from day one that you really looked forward to that interaction and teaching component um, which I want to get into that teaching component a little bit more, but just to finish up here before we transition, the the uh, what you've established at Ohio Wesleyan, your feelings towards the the school and the program. How quickly did that take place, and and then maybe how was that really established? When did you really feel like, wow, this is home? For some reason, um, Clint, I'm the first in my group from Boston, the first to go to college. Um, and for some reason, since I remember this clearly, since ninth grade, I wanted to coach and teach in a college. Mm-hmm. Don't ask me why, because I didn't know anything about college in, in ninth grade, and I was hoping I would get to college. Sure. Um, and so from the beginning, first time I stepped foot, now I, I did some teaching at Ohio State, getting my PhD, uh, you know, and so on, but, but from... The first time setting foot on campus at Ohio Wesleyan, I loved it. Mm-hmm. I loved teaching I'm, I, and coaching. I think probably there's a little bit of a showman in me. I love being in front of people. I, mm-hmm. I do a lot of public speaking. Um, but from the first day, so it didn't, it didn't take long. It didn't take, you know, an evolution as I went forward. It, right. it, it was the first class I walked into. It was from that, that point on, it's been, it's been great. Very interesting. Very interesting. And uh, for the listeners, Springfield College, huh? You never fell in love with basketball going to Springfield College up in, Bo- up in Massachusetts. Well, it was different times. So it, when I was in, at Springfield, I played soccer very badly. 
I'm, I'm an awful soccer player. I mean that. Then, okay, then I, I think it's important. Let me jump in here. How and why did you get involved in soccer? What drew you to soccer? Because this must have been what? The 50s, 60s that you really got intrigued in, in, in soccer? Or before um, that? Junior <laughs> year in high school, my basketball coach, John Barker, gave me two choices. I could either run cross country mm-hmm. or play soccer to get fit for basketball. Basketball was my favorite sport. Okay. I just couldn't envision myself running through the New England woods in my underwear. <laughs> so I okay, I'll go and I'll, I'll play soccer. And Clint, it was late in my athletic career, and I, I was never any good at, at soccer, never any good. When I to Springfield College, uh, play JVs first, um, but by the time I was a junior, I think, I was on the first team, but I think in my whole college career, I might have started two games. Uh, I think there was a, an epidemic on campus or something, and like I was the only one left to go in there. <laughs> um, and then in 1971, I graduated in June, and I moved to Munich, Germany to play basketball. And I ended up playing professional basketball in Germany for almost five years. Wow. And... Uh, in 71, moving to Munich, that was the epicenter of professional soccer at the time. Bayern Munich and Ajax were the two sure. best teams in in Europe. Um, you know, uh, uh, Bayern Munich, Gerd Müller, Sattmeier, Franz Beckenbauer, George Schwarzenbeck. I mean, just loaded. And my job, I lived in northern Munich near the Olympic Stadium. And Bayern, you may know, in 1860 trained in the south. And so every, my job didn't start coaching, and, and I was also also coaching their, the age group kids and playing on the first team. So I'd go down and watch Bayern Munich in the morning, and um, and uh, I'd just sit there and watch soccer. And I really fell in love with the game and really appreciated a country that had a soccer culture as deep as Germany. Right, and so when I came back to get my PhD, um, I wanted to coach soccer. I mean, my my original goal was to coach basketball mm-hmm. and do that. And I was also an All American in lacrosse at Springfield, um, but I fell in love with with soccer. And then I then I came back, got my masters, went back to Germany, and I was traded, I guess, to sure. a team in Dusseldorf. Okay. And with 22 miles from the Dutch border. So Saturdays was were Bundesliga games. Sundays were games in Holland. And uh, so and I was and so every weekend and then I'd play on Saturday nights. You know, of course, when I was traveling and playing, I didn't get a chance to see games. But, you know, I saw Ajax a ton of times, PSV, Benlo. I mean, it was just nuts. And That's in those incredible. days, Dusseldorf was in the first Bundesliga, they dropped out for a while. They're back now, not doing very well. Um, and I lived, actually, I could walk to the stadium in Dusseldorf. I mean, it was like two two blocks away from my house. So I was just immersed in, in this soccer culture called Germany. Mm-hmm. And by the way, I've taken 13 Ohio Wesleyan teams back to Germany for two weeks in August, every three years, um, so that they can see what a soccer culture is all about. I I started those trips 
because you probably don't remember this, but you know, in 78 World Cup, Argentina, there was nothing in the newspapers, no ESPN, nothing. And we had no internet. Mm -hmm. I couldn't even scores. And so in those days, we didn't know anything about soccer. We, the United States. So I wanted to take my teams to Europe to show them what soccer was all about. And some of my German friends would send me, uh, send me tapes of Bundesliga games that would cost me, believe it or not, $60 to change from the German format to our VHS format. (laughs) But my guys at Ohio Wesleyan were watching top level soccer in our locker room since 1977. So while other teams didn't have those role models, my teams did. And so when I talked about how we play, and I obviously style our play after Germans. Sure. And uh, so it was easy, easier for them to kind of figure it out, you know. And so I think I think those trips to Europe are they're a very very important part of our culture now and our team and and um, in fact we were supposed to go this August, but we had to obviously push it back to next August. Mm think you know so I was I started out as a basketball guy and ended up as a soccer guy <laughs> you uh, I, I want to make this point real quick you're probably the first coach to do video analysis with your team then you might be the first one to have done video analysis you were really ahead of the curve with that so <laughs> I, would, I would I don't want to say I was first but I was certainly one of the early ones no question about it yeah um, for the for the coaches that are listening, they this is really taking a turn for them. Probably they are, were probably assuming that you grew up around soccer your whole life, loved it. Some, maybe your dad played or something, and now they hear that you are a former uh, basketball player and, and lacrosse player, and then get thrown into the sport. You know, come your come your high school years, um, coaches are probably wondering how in the world has this guy pulled together so many players year in and year out to have so much success on the field. And I want to get your perspective on this because I think you're, it's super important to hear what you have to say, obviously, but this is something that you've been, the sport of soccer, you've been a part of for so long. You've seen so much change. I want to get your thoughts on player development before we go into to culture. Um, because we're, we're kind of on the topic already. There seems to be more quote-unquote trainers in, in the soccer landscape now over the past 10, 15 years than there are uh, coaches. Again, I know you don't like that, that word, but that's the word that I'm going to use. Or educators. Um, how much is that hurting the game? Is it hurting the game? What are we, how are we not progressing, so to say, in this country? Or do you think we are progressing? Um, I know that's a lot and it, it's pretty broad, but I guess the main point is trainers versus coaches. There just seems to be so, so many of these trainers one-on-one working on a specific uh, soccer trait, whether that's dribbling, passing, shooting. Is that an issue in this country? Do you see that in Germany when you go over there? Can you talk a little bit about it? It, it is an issue. First of all, I do think, Clint, that in my time, my la- the last four decades, we have improved a little bit. Sure. I couldn't agree more with you about the trainer versus coach si- situation. 
and for me, there are a lot of reasons for this. I think partly the internet, I think, is, is in part to blame for this. You haven't, you have a session this afternoon. You could plug in, uh, you know, attacking soccer session, 35 minutes or whatever, and you'll get 1.1 million hits in eight seconds. So you look at this and you uh, take that to your team. Your team might not be ready or capable to do this session. Sure. Uh, for example, I was for a big club here in central Ohio. I was the director of education and the, the, the coaching director wanted me to do a lot to, to do sessions where the coaches could watch me and I refused to. Um, and he got, in fact, it, it, it came between us and I left the club because I would say, look, I'm going to do a session. But that U10 coach out there, this isn't a session for him or her. This sure, is a yeah. session maybe for my team or a professional team or, or what have you. And so what happens is, and you've seen this at clinics and things, all the coaches, right, take these copious notes and then they run back to their teams and they try to apply what they learn to their teams and it's not appropriate in most in most cases. Sure. And so, yes, if you, in my hierarchy of importance in terms of coaching, X's and O's are about seven or eight out of ten. I mean, X's and O's. I mean, really, in the end, who cares about X's and O's? Doesn't win I you mean, games, right? You got to have them. I get that, but there are so many other elements that are important to coaching that many, many people don't understand, and they don't, and they don't get. And you know, I used to tell these youth coaches I wanted them there early. And I wanted them to greet every player that walks on the field with a high five or, hey, Clint, how you doing today? How you doing in school? Blah, blah, blah. Sure. That's part of coaching. But many of these trainers don't get that. They think coaching is X's and O's. And I'm going to come up with this great drill, 3v3 plus 3 or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. And it just doesn't, it just doesn't matter. And so we progressed a little bit, but not as much as we should. Although my friends in Germany, I have some very good friends, a friend who's on the board of directors at Schalke. Um, and of course, that's where McKinney plays. Sure. And they just signed another young man. I forget the kid's name, 16 years old. Yeah. Yeah. The German, the German clubs love Americans because we're fit, we're motivated, we're enthusiastic. We might not be as technical as some of the German players. But the German coaches, and I know a lot of them, the German coaches love American players. And they think we're getting better and better and better. My argument is we have 330 million people in this country, and we have how many are playing in Germany and how many are doing well? Handful. I mean, yeah, maybe. So, I mean, in terms of the depth of numbers in our country, we're not doing that well. And so McKinney, unfortunately, is an aberration. Right now, he's he's not the trend, unfortunately. He's an aberration, and Pulisic and these other kids, and so yeah, you know. And I and I think, and you know this. I think a second big problem is club directors uh, monetize their work, and so they make six figures. So in the end, and this is another reason I quit that club. They were a really nice little club. We had. 5,500 kids in it or something like that, all of a sudden the board wanted to make money. So they upped the fees, they did all these things, and I said, guys, you're making a big mistake. And I, and I, I couldn't be a part of that. Sure. I couldn't be a part of it. And yes, I was paid to do my job, 
but I couldn't be a part of this. And um, so the club became the club became a money grab instead of a player development situation. And they were great at player development mm-hmm. before they it a money grab. You know, now they've signed a contract with Barcelona. So they have six or seven or eight Spanish coaches who are living here in Central Ohio coaching their kids. I've seen some of the training sessions, and they're awful. Mm-hmm. They're, not, they're not good at all um, because the kids in Central Ohio are not Spanish. Sure, there's 100%. A, yeah. There's a cultural difference, and these people don't, don't, don't get that. And, um, you know, even, even with English coaches, even though we speak the same language and all those other things, in terms of soccer, there's a cultural difference between an English coach and an American coach. Mm-hmm. No judgment. I'm not saying one is better or worse than the other. They're just different. Sure. And so sometimes those English coaches, the communication process between them and an American kid sometimes is difficult mm-hmm. and not, not totally complete, if, they, if I'm making any sense at yeah. all. No, 100%. There's so many points that I want to touch on just from, from that uh those pieces that, that you just put out there. First and foremost, again, with the, the internet, that's one thing and training sessions that I refuse to do is put out what I do on the field. And that's not because I'm selfish, I wanna keep it to myself. It's just not a fit for maybe what another team is doing based on their players. It's interesting to see other training sessions, but don't try and replicate the same exact thing. Like the amount of of training sessions that I've altered from my time at Akron and applied it to uh, St. Benedict's is is immense, but it hasn't been a direct replica of what we did at Akron because it just isn't applied. And so often I think coaches are like, oh, let me pull this drill and do it when they really have no understanding of how it's really actually run. They see something online, let's pull it, let's use it in in my training sessions. And it's not really even productive because they're not even doing it properly. Um, So that's point one. Two, I'm really interested too, um, I wanna talk about this because I talked to Leo Chappell about this, one of your your former players. are American players, in fact, more fit than than European players and, and maybe uh, grittier and, and tough? Because I feel like there's been a shift away from that approach and mentality where the hard running really isn't there. I haven't seen it. Um, you know, from, I, I've really tried to instill it in my players um, that I work with, the hard running. Uh, and it's funny that you bring up you had the choice between cross country and soccer when in reality they're they're pretty similar uh with the amount of running that you need to do you just get a few more touches on the ball in soccer than in cross country but are we actually in fact um fit players are are we uh tough runners are we doing more running than than other um you know players around the world um and then Two, I w- or, or finally, we, I want to get into, after we discuss some of those points, maybe I should just save it, but I want to then talk about culture because you bring it up with the coaches from Barcelona and Spain and England and, and all over the world coming in here and, and per- saying they have the, the secrets. But in reality, Spanish coaches in, in, in central Ohio isn't really a fit. If you're going to send Spanish coaches anywhere, they need to go down to 
to Florida and into those pockets of the country, Los Angeles, where their player, the player, or what they're going to teach is more relevant to the players. You can't let's let's put it out there. You can't really teach the big, uh, you know, physical, um, predominantly more uh, white players in Central Ohio to play like Barcelona. It's just not a fit. So, um, so yeah, let's go back to, uh, the first point, I guess we can, can talk about the, um, the, uh, mentality of players and the toughness in, in terms of running and the physicality aspects of it, because I agree, Weston McKinney, Tyler Adams, um, you know, both, uh, carry those traits, but like you said, it's, they're just one-offs. It's, it seems, you know, in a particular age group. So Okay, um, before we go there, let me just say one more thing about the internet. That sure. And actually, a comment you made sparked this in my head. The in- internet is all about how, and the coaches don't know the why. Mm-hmm. And good coaches will know the why, and the why is so important. Our, our kids today are want to know why. Why am I doing this? Right. You know, not when a, when a coach looks at the internet and comes up with a training session or activity or a drill or what have you, there's no why there. It's how. Okay, here's how we do it. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, if a kid asks, well, why? Many coaches can't answer that. My, my son, I don't want to give a plug. He is really, really good at this. Yeah. I mean, uh, this coaching, he is really, really good at it. And we can get into that a little bit later. But good coaches explain the why yeah that's one that's one thing i try to do when i transition from drill to drill if i start with a functional activity i'll make it relevant to the possession and then when we move from the possession to the game like whether that's a 5v5 7v7 9v9 i explain okay this is why we did the functional this is why we're doing the possession and now look when we play the game this is why we've done the possession and the functional to lead up into the to the big picture and if i can't explain that then my session doesn't make sense as to how and what i'm doing so i think that's that's super important is to share the why that's a great point now the the running and so on and so forth I, i i i didn't tell you everything that the german coaches like about americans sure there are Two things that I left out. Number one is they love the way Americans compete. Okay. And every every single day, for example, um, and I've seen McKinney train over there. I spent time in Gelsenkirchen, and mm-hmm. uh, every single day I was I saw him train. He was one of the hardest workers, and he competed in every activity in the training session, where some of the Germans didn't. Mm-hmm. And the second thing although now the fourth or fifth thing that the German coaches like about us is team. Most Americans are about team. Most Germans are about themselves because it's they're trying to make it in the Bundesliga or make it in some league. And so they go to, it's like, it's like, they have, it's like tryouts every day in their training sessions. It's all about them. Mm-hmm. And they want to stand out so that they get more money or they move up to another team or they do whatever where by and large Americans are about team we that's part of our culture we love being part of teams we like working for the team and and so on and now the running part yes the Germans think the Americans are fitter than uh, most most Germans wow. they do hmm. now 
part of the problem, as you know, that we have in this country is we play too many damn games in too short a period of time. Mm-hmm. Sure. And, you know, I mean, you've been to these, you might have taken teams to some of these tournaments. Yeah. I mean, they're ridiculous. You know, you get there, you play at 5 o'clock Friday night, then 8 o'clock Saturday morning, 1 o'clock Saturday, 5 o'clock Saturday. If you win those games, you get to play in the semifinal at 10 o'clock Sunday and the final at 1 o'clock on Sunday. Right. How the hell can you play soccer and run in that situation? I call it underwater soccer because, you know, it's, I mean, they don't, most most kids don't even know who they're playing. No. You know, they just, hey, 1 o'clock, let's show up and I'll play. They can't run hard. They can't defend because they have another game in two hours. Mm-hmm. So I think I wrote I wrote an article about this many, many years ago that's been apparently twelve hundred times on, on websites across soccer websites across the country. But the tournaments and the way we play and, and I don't know how it is with St. Benedict's, but in Ohio, high school season, Tuesday night, Thursday night, Saturday night. Now how can you play three games in five days and expect your players to be able to run and play at a decent level? They're just not going to do that. They can't do that because, okay, Tuesday night we got a game in two days. So on Wednesday, you do some recovery, you do some stretching, no teaching, very little teaching, maybe some restarts. Sure. But not you can't move because now you got another game on, on Thursday night. I mean, that's just that's just nuts to me. I mean, even the college schedule. Yeah. We play Wednesday. Wednesdays and Saturdays. That's too much. Look at most of the European teams. Um, they play once a week, don't they? Unless they're in a cup quali- qualification or, or something like that. And you would never see a German team play in a tournament like we have, unless it's a special event like the Dallas Cup. Um, I want to get your thoughts on this because it's something that I, I my perspective is a little bit different um, over the, the past a uh, handful of years, especially with the development academy, is uh, our players. You must see it in the in the recruiting process. It seems like a lot of high school age players are solely playing for scholarships now, similar to the Germans playing for contracts. Is that a shift that you've seen maybe from the '90s into the early 2000s, late 2000s, and then you know now into 2020 with um, kids, especially in high school? just playing to get that collegiate scholarship or, or playing for that collegiate opportunity? Correct. No no question about it. And again, let's go back to the clubs. I've seen actual advertising to join to join clubs and in the advertisement they list, you know, we've had twenty two players go to division one, we've had twenty six players go to division two, blah, blah, blah. So the kid comes in and he's thinking or she's thinking, hey, if I go to this club I'm going to have a chance to play Division One, which translates to a scholarship. Right. And you know this. <laughs> what they don't know is that fewer than 2% of American high school soccer players actually get a scholarship to play soccer in college. Less than 2%. Right. And it's a little it's a little better for women because of Title IX. I think, I think if my research is correct, the 2.7, 2, 2.8... But fewer than 2% of the males who graduate from high school are going to get any money. And, and so, I mean, that's – in fact, Clint, there's more money available for students' academic money than there is for scholarship money. And so when I give these talks to people, I tell the parents to have the kids stop playing soccer, 
get their ass in the library and get some of that academic money. That's that's the key to, to, to getting into college. Thank you for oh. sharing that. Thank you for sharing that. Yeah. Because that's one of one of my pet peeves. It's one of those uh, it's one of those propaganda things on, on everybody's website that they say, oh, you 20, 20, you know, players are going off to college. OK, now it's important. Let's list next to those players names, scholarship, whether that's athletic or academic or is that being paid for by the family or is that through another way of aid? Right. Because it's like 22 players are going on to college. Okay, now let's dissect that. Not all 22 are getting athletic scholarships. If they're doing that, that's incredible. Majority of them are, like you said, athletic or the parents are paying for them. So it's almost, in a sense, false advertising by a lot of clubs where it's like it's not the reality of everybody going to get uh, academic or, or sorry, athletic scholarships. You know, we. We use the academic scholarship as our athletic scholarship. Mm-hmm. Over 80% of the kids on our team make uh, the highest academic award Ohio Wesleyan gives, which is quite substantial. So in the recruiting process, and you know, when I, when I was young, maybe, um, when I was young, maybe I recruited kids who weren't great students, but they were great players, and then I, that wasn't worth the effort, Clint, to try to keep them in the school and all these other things. So now, in our recruiting process, we're looking for kids with certain numbers, academic numbers, SAT, grade point, and so on, so that they can get academic money. And so, as I said, over 80% of our guys have that. And uh, none of them have a full ride. And, you know, Jerry Yagley at Indiana University did that for years and years and years. Uh, Do you know the name Danny O'Rourke? I know the name. Yeah, played in MLS, had a long time career in MLS, I'm pretty sure. I think played for, for New York Red Bulls as well for, for a little bit. Correct. And he went to IU. It was between IU and Ohio Wesleyan. He made the right choice for his future. But he was 100% academic money at IU. They didn't spend one athletic dime on him. He was a 4-0 student from a very good school here in Central Ohio, good SATs. And so Jerry Yagley has done that forever. And, you know, in IU, in the, I don't know what Todd does now who's at IU, but Jerry told me he only gave out one full scholarship in his entire career at Indiana. Hmm. And that was to one of those Croatian kids that he had toward the end of his, toward the end of his tenure there. I forget the young man's name. Only one. Wow. And he said, you know, here, you get books, you get this, you get that, and here's your academic package. So... I mean, it's, you know, and I, I get people in my department, you know, the, primarily football coaches, lacrosse coaches, and so on and so forth. You know, they haven't learned yet that they've got to look at the academic side of young men and not just the athletic side. They haven't learned that yet. And, and so the attrition, the dropout rate for those teams, for, as an example, is ridiculous. It's absolutely ridiculous. But, you know, that's whatever. Yeah, well, that's uh, that's why I think you've been having the the success that you've had because you've been identifying the the people and the the people that are willing to get educated and and want to get educated and and then uh, you know the soccer pieces then uh, it seems like pretty easy to to sort out and figure out. I know we we've kind of focused on what we've we've struggled with in this country in terms of focusing too much on the X's and O's, so to say 
where do we need to focus our attention a little bit more in player development or maybe a lot more uh, in this country because we have been lacking in in that category you know we've talked about communication upon arrival and greeting the the player and treating them as a person but what else in terms of, of player development should we be focusing on more rather than the x's and o's very good question my coaching philosophy and when I say this to camps and clinics, coaches get mad as hell. First and foremost, Clint, I don't think coaches develop players. Uh, and any coach that thinks he or she develops players is missing the boat. That means, that tells me that that coach is a coach-centric person. Only players can develop players. I can't make you a better player, Clint. I don't have a magic wand. Boom, you're an All-American. Congratulations. That isn't how it works. So we have to put the onus of player development on the players. And we've got to have them, we've got to foster intrinsic motivation. And you do that by, in my opinion, by um, having the players involved in everything in the program. For example, I talked to you about how my son Ryan coaches. So here's a quick example. So first of all, everything that he does is timed. So, and you know this, so if I'm doing a 3v3 and I say to my team, okay, ready, play. Well, you're not going to get 100% effort because they don't know how long it's going to last. Mm. If I say we're going to do 3v3 for 90 seconds, tweet, go. You'll see the effort improve. Sure. And then at the end of 90 seconds, uh, well, let's let's say Ryan's doing a session on, on six, six uh, attacking the goal, six against four or whatever it is. Okay, for 90 seconds, guys, we're going to do this. Ready, go. 90 seconds is over, tweet. All right, guys, come on in. How do we do? He's putting the burden of play development on the players, and he's making them think. So you and I and Ryan could easily tell these guys what, what they have to do to get better, but there's, there's no learning there. So, okay, Clint, how do we do? Well, you know, we only scored three goals, um, but, but Clint, it was only 90 seconds. If you score three goals every 90 seconds in a soccer game, you're going to win a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's all. Okay, what can we do better then, Clint? If you want to score the fourth goal, what can we do better? Well, maybe we got to get the ball out wide, whatever it is. Okay, very good. What didn't we do well? Okay, the back four. How come they scored three goals on you? What happened? You know, and so the burden of the development is with the player. Sure. And he's making the players think. And that's how you learn. You know that. That's how you learn. And, uh, you know, when I was a young kid, different era, obviously, <laughs> different era. We played all kinds of sports in the neighborhood in South Boston. And uh, there wasn't an adult within 10 miles. Right. We didn't care. But that's how we learned. We learned how to hit a baseball. We learned how to skate. We learned how to play hockey. We learned how to play football. Because we had to make the decisions. And we had to think about what we're going to do. And many, this is part of the environment. So, so the second part of my philosophy is, so it's my job to create an environment in which the players can get better, hopefully that's the coaching, and they want to get better. That's their motivation. Mm. And so, and I'm adamant about that, and that's been my philosophy for 40 years. You know, I don't have a magic wand. You wanna get better, Clint? You wanna start? Wanna make all conference? Well, let's go. 
So we do a lot of goal setting so and self-evaluation so you know where you are and blah, 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 all, all those other things. Right. But we so, – and this goes back to your comment a few moments ago. That's what coaches do. Trainers don't do that. Trainers aren't about the why, and trainers are about telling the players what to do. Tweet, do it. And there's just too much of that in this in this country. When the when you know if you read about uh, McKinney and Pulisic and some of these other guys, and you read about when they were young, they're out in the street in the backyards with their in the, with their neighbors playing soccer, playing soccer. Nobody's telling them what to do. They figured it out on their own. And here's what happens. I don't. I'm sure this doesn't happen at, at your place. But go to a youth training session. Doesn't matter. Here's what happens. All the kids show up, they put on their shoes, and then they stand around and they wait for the coach to tell them what to do. That isn't how you get better. If you came to an Ohio Wesleyan practice, the guys are going out, they do goal setting, they're working on something every single day before practice to make themselves better. I don't have to tell them. I do help them. You know, okay, your goal is to improve your left foot. Okay, here are some things you can do. Then it's up to them. Right. We've had times, Clint, when I, I went out, you know, we opened the facility at 2, but those kids who don't have afternoon classes, we start training at 4. I've gone out in the past with our assistant coaches, and I looked around the field, and I could see a small-sided game over here. I could see the forwards shooting on the goalkeepers over here. I could see all these little pockets of guys doing something, and I said to my coach, we're not, let's just let them go. Just, we'll watch today. We'll walk around and give them some advice because they're learning right now. They're learning on their own. They're, they're, they're taking, they're taking uh, development and putting it on themselves. And so that's part of a culture. That's part of an environment to make these kids motivated. I want my players looking forward to coming to practice every single day. And if you can create an environment like that, you're going to win a lot of games. You yeah. know, and, and co- trainers are, are backwards. Not they, they look at the wins first and work back from there. I look at the. I don't even look at the wins. You know, all the things we do. If we do it correctly, the wins will take care of themselves. There's a great book you ought to read. It's, it's by Bill Walsh, who was a football coach in San Francisco. It's called "The Score Takes Care of Itself." Hmm. And even though it's an American football tale, he was uh, he was ahead of his time in NFL coaches. It's a great book. Clint and any coaches out there who are listening, sure. the score takes care of itself. It's really, really good. But it's about this this philosophy. Score takes care of itself. That's perfect. Now, I you, you brought up a lot of points. It's one of the things that I, I try to focus on as well is just setting the environment. Like you say, every every training session that players I work with show up to know in the beginning that it starts with, with rondos. It's already set up. They show up. If it's if it's four guys, it'll be a three v one. If it's seven, then five v two. So on. There there are multiple grids. When everybody shows up, there's usually you know two five v twos or six v two, depending on on the numbers. And we take it from there. If it's going really well, I'll leave it alone. Sometimes we'll do rondos for for thirty minutes, depending how intense and productive it is. Um, and and then I'll take the the session on from there. I think it's really interesting and, and intriguing for for the listeners. You bring up the intrinsic motivation, the self-motivated players. Um, 
And I actually read uh, an interview that you did um, and it reads, we have a culture here um, that emphasizes intrinsic motivation. And I, and I wanna now tie in culture a little bit um, for you to touch on because so often we, we've talked about the, the trainers thinking that they can control the players and, and put them on this upward trajectory in terms of producing them to play at the next level. And I think those are the players that are uh, severely suffering because they need somebody to tell them what to do. So there are so many one-on-one -on -one soccer coaches. If you're going to do anything, it has to be at least a, a two, three, four group session. These one-on-ones, I think, are really hindering the players because they're not self-motivated. They have to, or they're doing what they're being told, or they have to do what they're being told, and and they're not really in an environment and they're not self-motivated to really develop. I think so many families are fooled that these one-on-one -on -one trainers are gonna help my son or daughter become this Pulisic or McKinney or whoever you wanna replicate your game after. When in reality, if you're not in that demanding environment, tough environment, like I said, that's one of the things that I tried to to focus and stress on is the environment and, and controlling that. I'm not going to control, like you say, the, the wins and losses and how well a player does or, or doesn't do, but I can control the environment. If the players feed off of the environment, then they are going to get better. So to tie in culture now for a little bit, I, I want to talk to you about that because like I said, it's one of those things that's or one of those words that's thrown around so often in today's game. Everybody's developing a culture. You've talked about intrinsic motivation. What else, you know, over the, the 40 years has has progressed in your culture? Because culture doesn't happen overnight or in a season or in a year. It, it takes a lot of time. And like we've seen uh, and you've seen firsthand at Ohio Wesley and I've seen firsthand at St. Benedict's culture takes seasons and years. How did that start? What started it? And then uh, how have you just let it flourish? Because you're, you're essentially, I'm essentially taking a step back and letting the players handle it. What, what are some big pieces of culture that you want to talk about and touch on? Well, Clint, you, you just said the most important thing is let the players take care of it. Um, so the first day of preseason, here's what happens at Ohio Wesleyan. I take the seniors and I, I assign underclassmen to each senior and the seniors we, we start by creating our value system for the year so the seniors go out i give them a 400 400 values on a piece of paper they go out and i ask each group to come back with their top 10 values on the board collate it go out come back here's here's what you here's what you can pick from now come up with your top five and we do this process until uh, we have what seven, eight, nine values that are that are important. Now yeah. the key to this, Clint, is they, it comes from the from the players, not me. I don't care. They and and the our values would be similar, but it comes from the players. And what does that mean? It means buy-in. So if if halfway through the season something happens, I have to you know talk about the values. I'll say, hey, Clint, now wait a minute. These are your values. They're not they're not mine. And uh, then the second thing we do that day, same format, send the guys out, and we do goal setting, team goals. We have academic goals, we have on the field goals, we call them competitive goals, and so on and so forth. We put the values and the goals 
on a on a laminated chart. Each player has to sign it. We hang it up in the locker room. Now, do they look at it every day? Of course not. You know that. I know that. But they're there. And subtly, they're there every day. And I have nothing to do with this process. It comes from the captains. And the freshmen are watching. And then they're soft. And then when they become sophomores, they're still watching. When they're juniors, they're a little more engaged. And then they're the seniors, and they, and they run the show. So our culture is self-perpetuating, and it's passed down as to from from the seniors every year it's passed it's passed down if this makes if this makes any sense no it does it does and then the third thing that's very important is relationships um so for example we just come off the practice field and we what the heck was i talking about oh relationships so we just had a practice and maybe we tried a new activity in that practice and so we're walking in off the field, and I might say, Clint, how do you like that act, that second activity? Well, Jay, it was one of the stupidest things we've ever done. I said, well, here's what I was trying to do. And they'll say, missed the mark, didn't do it. So I have two choices. I get rid of it, which happens a lot, or I revise it to sure. make it better. But again, the players are involved. And, you know, freshmen will never answer that. Oh, Coach, that was great, blah, blah, blah. But, you know, juniors and seniors, they they get what we're trying to do. Because you know this, the the two hours you have this afternoon are gold. We don't have enough time to practice. And um, so we can't have an activity that's a waste of time. We can't have it. And so the player's input all the time is important. Number four, we have a leadership council. And I will say that we were probably one of the first. Now a lot of people have that, and I think that's great. We've, been have, we've had it for 40 years. Hmm. And you know, it's the, it's, the, it's the captains and an elected member from each class. We meet every Monday at 2.30, right before the Monday. We kind of review last week. We kind of preview this week. Guys, how, how are things going? How are your legs? How's your fitness? Any problems over the weekend? Blah blah blah. What can we do to get better? And and again, the freshmen don't say anything, but the other guys get it, and they're giving us input all the time, all the time. Because Clint, I have tenure, academic tenure. I'm not going anywhere. Hmm. But for four years, the team is your team. It's not my team. It's your team. Uh, we don't have a hierarchy. I I don't. I don't look at myself at, as at being at the apex of the pyramid, looking down at the players. I don't do that. I'm with the players. We're in this mess together, and therefore we're going to work together. And it takes. It's very interesting because when you come in as a freshman, very few freshmen are used to this kind of philosophy. Sure. Right. They're they're used to, to having a coach centric coach who's yelling and screaming and doing all these other things. I don't yell and scream. I don't yell and scream in a game. I don't yell and scream in practice. They don't want to hear that. When you were a player, you, did, you were sick of Caleb yelling at you all the time. I mean, that's just how it is. And you didn't even listen half the time. I mean, I know that's how it is. Am I, am I right? <laughs> yeah. Luckily I, ha- luckily, I had Jared Embick, right? So he uh, oh, okay. he, didn't, right. he didn't scream and yell that much. But I heard from the players before, because I transitioned the year after Caleb left, I think a lot of players were excited to have Jared and didn't have somebody yeah. screaming down their, their neck for, for the whole, uh, like you said, two-hour training session trying to get something accomplished. So, um, But yeah, you're right. 
you you can't you cannot play with somebody screaming and yelling at you. It's too late at that point, right? In a game, sure. if you make a mistake, what? It's the play is done. You can't coach that last play. It's in it's in the past, right? It's too late. So, I mean, I don't understand why coaches do this. I mean, I see it in college soccer all the time, and I just I just shake my just shake my head. It's too late. The players don't listen. But what that means is you develop players who have a fear of failure. And when you have a fear of failure, you cannot play at a high level, period. That's, that's irrefutable. That's not, if I'm always looking over my shoulder every time I make a pass to see the reaction of the coach, I can't play. No. That's all there is to it. You know, Accept the mistake, suck it up, move on. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. I don't remember a day in my life where I didn't make mistakes. I don't remember. You know, and soccer is a game of mistakes. A lot of them. That's how it <laughs> a lot of them. And the team maybe that makes fewer mistakes maybe has a better chance of winning. Not always, but soccer is a game of mistakes. And so so you have to build a culture where making a mistake isn't bad. Now let me let me clarify that. Um, making mistakes in practice is what's necessary to get better. If you look at this little circle We'll call it your comfort zone. It's called the comfort zone because everything you do in that circle, Clint, you're comfortable with and you don't make mistakes, but you don't learn either. The circle around that is called the learning zone. So you have to get out of your comfort zone and into the learning zone. That's when you make mistakes, but that's how you get better. Now, the key is that you try not to make mistakes in the game, which means you have to evaluate yourself very honestly and accurately so you know what you can do and more importantly what you can't do and you don't go in a game and try to do something you can't do my example of this is again sorry basketball Mm -hmm. look at michael michael jordan and his skill set pretty damn big wasn't it yeah amazing look at Larry bird and his skill set not half as big as michael's but bird never made mistakes he knew what he could do, and that's what he did. And that's what elite athletes do. They know what they can do, and they do it over and over and over. And you don't try a bicycle kick with 10 minutes left in the state championship game the first time in your life. You just don't do that. That's a practice. Hmm. But what happens? Your kids, my kids, they go into games, and they try to do things that they can't do, Clint. Now, look, their heart's in the right place. Right. They're trying to help the team. There's, I don't, there's no argument there. But they're not helping the team. They're hurting the, hurting the team. And usually, when you try to do something you can't do, it's, it's a real problem. You make a mistake. You get on yourself. Your teammates get on you. And your play goes down. So it's a, it's a very interesting dynamic. I, you know, we never yell if somebody makes a mistake. Never. Never. Now, we might talk about it at halftime or the next day or whatever. You know, did you see this? You could have done this. But... But whatever. You probably know about the 1974 study about John Wooden. Have you ever read that study? Which particular one? I've, I've read a lot on John Wooden. I don't know maybe particularly the one you're talking about. In 1974, there were two, two uh, educational psychology PhD candidates at UCLA who wanted to de- define the perfect teacher. And they chose John Wooden. Mm-hmm. And well, they watched practice every single day that year. It, ironically, it was his last year. 
and they coded, C-O-D-E-D, they coded everything that he said. Positive comment, negative comment, throwaways, Clint, how are you doing today, you know, right. and so on. So when I tell people in clinics this, I always say, coaches, which comments did John Wooden say the most? And always the hands go up and they say positive comments. I go, no, not at all. 6% positive comments, 6% negative comments, 74% informative comments, hmm. how he can help the players get better. I mean, and I'm, I'm guilty of this. Hey, nice shot, Clint. Yeah. The hell is that mean? Doesn't I mean, do what anything. does that mean? Yeah. No, but I, I unfortunately do it too much. I do um, it as well. <laughs> so, Clint, you hit the ball really well, but if you can, you know, blue, whatever, and you make a coaching for it, and that's how it is. Um, and that's what John Wooden would do. He would stop the play, talk to Bill Walton or Abdul Jabbar, and he'd say, that was good, but what if you did this? Or did you see Gail Goodrich over there all by himself, spotting up for a three, blah, blah, blah. Ziggy Schmidt, Ziggy Schmidt was really good at that as well. Uh, mm -hmm. God rest his soul. Sure. But he was really, really good. And, uh, and that's, what, that's what creates the culture, and that's how the players get better. Sure. Now that's amazing points. Amazing points. And there, before we wrap up here, there's one more thing I want to talk to you about because I'll keep you here all day talking to you about a million things. Maybe we'll save it for another time, hopefully. But we've we've brought up so many points in, in terms of education, both for for the player and for the coaches. And I've been involved in a lot of coaching courses so far in, in my young career. But I am so curious as to why. I haven't come across you running any of the the coaching courses, whether that's U.S. Soccer, United Soccer coaches. Um, maybe it's in maybe it's only in Ohio, but you're you're someone like I said in the beginning of the, of the podcast and throughout. You have so much experience and have had so much success um, that it needs to be to be shared. And we we talk we hear so many things about the X's and O's in the coaching courses. And so little about the the personal relationships, and we've talked about intrinsic motivation, communicating properly. Have you been asked to do these courses? Have you, have you passed them up? Why have you not been involved in more of these courses? Because I think you're someone that's essential to be heard from, and and uh, and going forward, I, I know we've talked about it off off camera, uh, off uh, the recording that uh, you're working on a few things and, and hopefully get some of your methodology out there for coaches going forward. But so much is talked about in these in these coaching courses and so little is what we've talked about in this. So so little what is talked about in the uh, coaching courses that we've talked about here. Did I, did I word that properly? I don't think I did. What we talk yeah. about it, or what we hear in the coaching courses is not what we've talked about in this podcast episode. Well, thank you for saying that. I will say that I was on the NSCAA when it was the NSCA. I was on their uh, staff. Hmm. Um, then I became uh, on the executive board. Then I became president of the NSCA in 1996 or so, whenever that was. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was a conflict of interest for me as the president to be on the staff. So I gotcha. stepped down from that and I just... Um, just never got back on. I just, I mean, I, and, and let me tell you just a couple things. I don't have one 
diploma from U.S. soccer. I don't have one <laughs> diploma from national soccer coaches. Um, and to be honest with you, Clint, I think the biggest reason is you just said it. You just told. I think the coaching schools for both organizations have some flaws. And so, for example, it, it usually ends with you having to coach a subject with your little group, right? Mm, yep. But Clint, that's not realistic to how you coach. How many kids do you have on your team at, at St. Benedict's? There's anywhere between 24 and, and 26 to 28, depending on the year. So it's a, a large number. That's players moving up and down from varsity to to our second team as well. So, yeah, around okay, so, 24. So, so the coaching courses, you do, you work with what? Eight or ten people to make your points? Right. What are the, yeah. other, tw- what are the other 20 doing? And it's not realistic. It's mm. not realistic. And again, it's a coaching courses to me. It's get, I think it's getting a little better with the why, but it's mostly with the how. Here's right. how you do this, and so on. And so I, you know, I don't have any licenses. I mean, <laughs> I have a driver's license. Yeah, I think, but, that's important. <laughs> but, but, um, but anyway, we're getting. In, into some of my deep-seated biases here, so I, I uh, but I just don't agree a lot with um, with the What's how they talk? do the yeah. Yeah. right. Yeah. Well, I have given presentations at the convention, and not a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I mean, I don't know that. And um, that's more of an academic thing, which I really enjoy doing. And if you read, I don't know if you read Soccer Journal or whatever, the articles that I put in there, we only have one article each year, each each issue about the how. We call it five favorites. And we talk to a coach, Clint, send me your five favorite coaching activities. We put it in there. But the, the rest of the articles, Clint, are about what we're talking about right now, yeah. trying to educate the membership that – X's and O's, in my mind, are way down, way down the list. Mm-hmm. No question about it. So, and, and as I told you off, off mic when we first started, I'm not a self-promoter. I've never been a self-promoter. I, I should have been a little more, maybe. But, you know, I, so anyway, I appreciate you saying that. But, and, and now I'm to the point where, well, I just... You know, and you know the irony is my son Ryan. Can't, he's got his A. He's got his. Yeah. He's got a pro. You're you're over a pro or whatever they call it. And yeah, he UEFA. Can't, yeah. He can't get on to do any teaching. He yeah. can't. I'm like, are you kidding me? Mm. I mean, he's so much better as a coach than I am, and he can't get on to share share his knowledge. Now he's got to be one of the best licensed, whatever, sure. I mean, American that we have, and. Uh, and you know, there's so much, so much politics and infighting and all these other things. Um, I was on the committee that came up with the curriculum in the 1990s for the NSCA courses, um, with the understanding that we used uh, Walter Winterbottoms from England, his kind of stuff, first defender, second defender, all sure. those things. Yeah. But as I said, I have no licenses, mm. so maybe that's why they don't let me on the staff. I don't know. <laughs> well, regardless of. Regardless, 
Yeah, regardless of licenses, the success speaks for itself. You don't need to, to carry all those. But there goes one of my questions where the likelihood of U.S. soccer having you even with one of the youth teams, maybe the 18s or, or 20s, is probably out the window since you're not qualified as a coach. Uh, right. I, I'm sorry. You just don't have, oh. have the A license. No. I know that. <laughs> so it's... Oh. It's funny though. You does Bill Belichick have any uh, NFL coaching license, or uh, you know, did John Wooden carry any licenses, or, or Phil Jackson, or or you name it, uh, Steve Kerr? Uh, I'm pretty sure none of them carry uh, any licenses aside from maybe, like you said, their driver's license. But but you know these these schools, these coaching schools. This is unique to soccer in this country. There's no such thing in basketball. No. Um, one of my one of the things I've said for years is that we it's getting better but we Americans have an inferiority complex when it comes to soccer and so we have to go and get these diplomas and so on and so forth instead of just thinking about coaching and um, and we, it's deep-seated in us you know I mean we deep down inside we, we compare ourselves always with Europeans the coaching the U.S. soccer coaching school. We brought in Brazilians, we brought in Germans, we brought in Serbians, and all these things. And we don't have the German mentality, the Brazilian mentality. We're not going to be Brazil. We're not going to be Germany. We're going to be the United States. That's okay. So let's, like, <laughs> let's, let's identify our strengths. And I think that's one thing Arena did really well. He knew we compete. We're fish. Blah blah blah, and he, his teams played to the strengths of the United States athlete. In my opinion, I agree. I agree, and I think that's important to do. It's so hard to replicate playing like Spain when you don't have Xavi, Iniesta, and Busquets. It's extremely impossible to replicate playing like Brazil when you don't have Marcelo and Danny Alves as your outside backs and then the attacking options going forward so on and so on for each country and and that's one of those things that I find funny um, with the coaching courses and I hope I don't get myself in trouble with this since I'm just starting my career you can say what you want since you're you're winding down and pending pending all this medical advancement you could go another 40 years but um it's just so one-sided. There's only one perspective with a lot of the, the coaching courses. This is how it's done. I would love it if the coaching courses said, you know, here's A option, here's B option, here's C option to do it. Here are three different perspectives on how to approach a certain situation. But it's just one approach to every situation where in soccer, as you know, there's not one way to do it. So, um, yeah, it's just one of those funny things that I find I in those courses. And that goes for coaches, too. And what I mean by that is I've had, I, I go to Europe a lot, two, two or three times a, a year. And uh, a few years ago, Ryan and I were watching Pep at uh, Bayern Munich. I, we have some good contacts at Bayern Munich. And Pep did a whole bunch of small group coaching while his assistant coaches were doing maybe shooting, fitness, whatever, he would take the wingers and the uh, center forward and maybe the attacking midfield or the nine or whatever, sure. and he would break it down situationally. So he'd give the ball to the, to the uh, attacking midfielder, who then he told him what to do, put it out wide, take two touches, cut it back, score. So, and he would do that and he would stay on the practice field 
for hours. You and I can't do that, can we? No. For the same reason, because we've got 25 guys behind us waiting for us to, to come up with something for them, for yeah. them to do. Right. And the new trend in Europe is pos- positional coaching. Sure. Yeah. So not only do you have goalkeeper coaches, you have a coach for the back four, coach for the midfield, coach for the attackers, and it's a lot like the NFL model, the American football model. So they work with their groups, and then the head man calls them all together and they put it together at the at the end of, of, of practice. And so, you know, I'm, I'm not sure we're moving in that direction, but the, the, the Europeans are certainly moving in that direction. Yeah, no, that's a great point. It's funny that uh, we're tying it back to the American sports with uh, position-specific coaches and, you know, the back four and then working with the midfielders and, and, and strikers, so on and so forth. That's going to be interesting to see how it progresses here uh, over the next few years if it does replicate uh, a model similar to American football with, uh, you know, like a quarterback coach, a, uh, a wide receiver coach. So uh, to wrap up here, uh, Jay, I want to get your most memorable soccer experience or one of them. I know you've had a lot, but that's the way I wrap up the podcast. Um, you know, it could be a, a general, you know, soccer memory in terms of, you know, like you, you've mentioned, players going on to become doctors and or it could be that uh, that 2011 experience. Uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing this uh, this from you, and I'm sure the listeners are as well. You've had 43 years as a as a coach, so I'm sure there are countless memories to choose from. So sorry to put you on the spot. <laughs> and it would be almost impossible for me to come up with one. I, I will say one of my early memories was I was living in Germany, and I went to the 1974 World Cup final between Holland and West Germany and I actually have a picture in my office of Beckenbauer and Cruyff exchanging the banners at the middle of the field before that and they have both they both signed it for me so that is one of my treasures and that Brian will end up with at some point um, but and I know this a lot of the people listening aren't going to believe this but my best soccer moments are when my guys graduate each year. I'm, I've been to every graduation except one in 40 years and I just I just feel really, really good. We had 13 graduate this year. Unfortunately, there was no graduation. Mm. But I feel really, really good, okay? I, I sit there and I say, mission accomplished, okay? And, and yes, by the way, we won 70 games and lost 12 and tied three in four years or whatever it is. So. So honest, honestly, I've had a ton of great experiences. You know, Ryan and I went to Euro 96 in England, and uh, we went to like 18 games. I mean, it was nuts. And uh, we went to the, the European Championship in Portugal. I've been to a number of World Cup finals <laughs> and World Cup games. And it's, it's really hard, Clint, for me to come up with one. But graduation is always a special day for me. Yeah. Well, maybe I'll, I'll put you on the spot next time we do it. I'll give you some time to, to think about uh, your most memorable soccer experience. But it's been an absolute pleasure um, and honor to speak to you. And I hope that uh, the listeners uh, gained a lot of a lot of information from this podcast. And I know I sure have and and hope to continue to share the, the growth of the game with with people like you and, and other coaches and players going forward. So. Thank you so much, Jay. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me.